Welcome to a podcast on Fire on I Love Maria and Future Cops. So it's a robot action uh, at Filmwork Shop uh, going on here. That's the style they're going for for the Choi Hacks Film Workshop. They're crafting robots for us. But this time it's starring sometimes off the wall and office rocket director and inspiring producer Choi Hak. He's behind the scenes and in front of the camera and we love him being loony in bit parts. But what about a feature, then, in front of the camera? So we'll discuss and review his role and the pairing with John Shum and a robotic, literally, Salier in I Love Maria from 1988, aka RoboForce. Also, somewhere along the line, uh, Wong Jing wanted to do a full Street Fighter movie. Only he could. So he still did it. And the result is Future Cops, and we'll discuss that starring Dickie. Andy, Simon, Jackie, Jingmi, Kingdom. What a lovely bunch of English uh, names. <laughs> and uh, that is what we're going to discuss in the second half of the 1993 action comedy Future Cops Toads, not Street Fighter 2. Or Street Fighter in general. But anyway, my name is Ken B, and with me is the co-host of the East Green, West Green podcast, and possibly the one who's a bit more knowledgeable about uh, the Street Fighter universe and what have you. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But nevertheless... Nonetheless, he is Paul Fox, so good morning, buddy. Good morning, hello, and I'm very happy to be here on this sort of sci-fi-themed episode of Podcast on Fire, right? I mean, these are these are rare films to come out of Hong Kong. They don't do sci-fi that often, so... No, nor really should they, because it never re- and it doesn't really pan out that well. Even in modern times, it doesn't really pan out that well. We, we have some movies to reference, like, was that a high watermark? And uh, I expect Paul to say, nope. <laughs> uh, to to speak of like uh, like movies fifteen years later or whatever like uh, did they learn something by then? Nope, still looks still looks bad. So it's a matter of like okay, how do they craft a movie that they can do? Like are they gonna are they gonna take on too much at once? You know that would be the question in Isla Maria. Like, it's a sci-fi movie, but does it hold back uh, because it's not uh, the biggest budgeted movie out there but uh, we'll get to that and uh, uh, oh, oh by the way are, are you a street fighter aficionado or you only played a game or two here and there out of the many 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 incarnations that uh, that it had oh yes i'm street fighter all the way i you know when it comes down to your various groupings you know you have your mortal combat fans um, you have uh, the, the sort of the Dynasty Warriors fighting game series as well. And, and I've been a core Street Fighter fan um, since the original Street Fighter, even before Street Fighter 2. Oh, right, right, right. So, yeah, because there are a lot of the inspirations from one can argue, I guess, that, that because of Street Fighter 2, that's why Wong Jing turned, turned on his radar. Because uh, Street Fighter 1, I don't remember being this uh, global breakthrough thing. No, not at all, and and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about when we get into the film how it cuts over to the game and the phenomenon and, and where it sort of ties back to even earlier games, just in terms of some of the character and color scheme representation and those kinds of things. Cool, cool, cool. Well, we'll get to that uh, in the second half, but uh, first there's contact information, then it is I Love Maria, but uh, this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. Our website is podcastonfire.com, where we have this show on Hong Kong cinema, new and old. I'm trying to do a little bit more choices on my own, uh, rather than just have it in the Dynasty Report of um, new movies. You know, for instance, we talked of Call of Heroes uh, a few episodes back, and uh, and I got out of off the hate train, uh, directed to Benny Chan, and said that, that 
acceptable, likable film. Nothing bad, nothing bad to say about Benny Chan at all. Uh, if anything, he learned something in terms of drama and stuff like that. Uh, when you work with veteran actors, there should be uh, some better results on screen, and uh, there certainly was in terms of call appearance. And I, I remember you thinking that it was a decent enough time as well, action-wise and dramatically. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Arguably one of the better films to come out of 2016. Not saying that it's a super great film, but uh, it is definitely par for the course for the year, so... And uh, we have uh, plenty of other shows on Japanese cinema, Korean cinema. We're going to even be looking in the future at uh, the biggest Korean movie, arguably, or one of the big three, arguably, from last year. Because uh, I have an episode done and edited of uh, Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. But uh, we're going to talk to Train to Busan and uh, even The Wailing during uh, 2017, the big three from last year in Korea. But uh, plenty of shows over on podcastonfire.com. Make your uh, pick uh, whatever suits your taste. So we also have bonus episodes every now and again. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com is our email. Let us know what you thought of Isla Maria, Future Cops, fan of Street Fighter, uh, particular pot or incarnation of street fighter let us know and uh, we have uh, handy buttons on it at the top of our website leading to our social media facebook leads to facebook button leads to our page but you can also search out our group that's called podcast on fire network we post show updates have discussions over there and a good 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 time click the twitter button to follow our tweets click the itunes button to subscribe to our feed and leave a star rating and a written comment if you have something to say about the show in those forms and finally click the stitcher radio button it will lead you to their website where you can search out our shows stream them but you can also do that on the go if you download apps from the apple app store or google play and i write about the variety of hong kong and taiwanese and ninja infused and adult movies across hong kong and taiwan and that's over at SoGoodReviews.com. I'm taking, a, at the time of recording, a little bit of break to focus on this uh, online course on Hong Kong cinema that uh, Paul and a few other of our Facebook chums are, are attending. So it's one of those things I I like to do a lot, but it came, I, I don't want to run into like a wall of stress by including everything I like to do and the course because... Going back to school, so to say, is a big deal for me because um, it was, I was not a not a big fan of school, <laughs> so uh, focus is uh, required. But uh, we're at the time of recording, we're about uh, halfway done, so it's uh, going good so far, hopefully, anyway. Uh, but anyway, I also do the spoken video, basic video reviews at sleazykvideo.com, and my tweets are at so good reviews. Paul, my friend, uh, podcasting has never really slowed down despite moving. You guys are productive like you read about, which is very pleasing to uh, to me as a fan of your show. So uh, introduce uh, some of the listeners to your show and podcast, and uh, where is it? Our show is East Screen, West Screen, where we cover, try to cover the current stuff coming out of Hong Kong and sometimes an occasional Hollywood film. Since I've made the move back, Kevin has taken up the sort of focus on current Hong Kong cinema but we're trying to play with some things to you know, hold off on certain reviews of certain films to once they come out on video and then we'll do them together so that I'm not always talking about a Hollywood film. I'm also trying to branch out into looking at newer stuff that's on Netflix or Amazon Prime that's been within the last year and uh, talking on that as well because I'm just that much in, more interested in Asian cinema than I am uh, Hollywood. I mean, we still like to talk about the occasional big blockbuster or crossover you know so our latest episode that's still being edited at this time was on of course uh, matt damon in the great wall and we have quite a bit to say about that 
So yeah, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, please do check us out. We're over at Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and all the relevant social media platforms as well. Yeah, you're lucky over there in uh, in the US in terms of Netflix because by now I can't access uh, US Netflix. They did a crackdown. But uh, for Wellgo, who bring out um, you know recent movies, you know recent Jackie Chan movies shortly after the premiere in Asia, the trip to Netflix uh, over length of time it takes to get to Netflix for the Wellgo titles is not that uh, grave, you know. So I think uh, Railroad Tigers probably shortly on Netflix, if not already on Netflix, which is a cool deal that Wellgo has. Uh, for Asian movies, but certainly with Netflix as well. So, um, so, so maybe you know that's the waiting game for you as well to just wait until something's hit Netflix, even if it's three months or whatever after the Asian premieres. So, yes, indeed. Cool. In the meantime, we are going to take a promo break, listen to a promo from one of our friends in the podcasting community, and after that, we'll be back to discuss I Love Maria, starring. Choi Hak and John Shum. Yep, not just Choi Hak as a loony FBI agent, but uh, Choi Hak uh, as uh, well, a certified alcoholic, it looks like, <laughs> judging by the start of the movie. It's called Whiskey. But uh, regardless, this is uh, one out of two Choi Hak starring roles. Is it this and Final Victory? I think it is. Otherwise, he kept, um, he kept uh, busy behind the camera. But uh, regardless, we'll be back after this promo, so sit tight. Hey everyone, you are listening to the Podcast on Fire Network. My name is Bird. And I'm Matt. We are the Kaiju Transmissions Podcast, so if you like giant monsters, Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, uh, King Kong, if you like Japanese sci-fi, we are the place to be. And you can check us out online in several places. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, check us out on Twitter. Uh, our handle is KT underscore podcast, or visit us on Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast. And you can also email us at Kaiju Transmissions Podcast at gmail.com. So if you like your monsters gigantic, angry, and rubbery, check us out. And welcome back to the first review of this episode is I Love Maria from 1988, a.k.a. Roboforce, if you ever saw it uh, in an international form. That was its international title as English dubbed. And plot from the Love HK film review of the film, Sally stars as the Maria of, uh, of the piece, if you will, the evil mole to a mob boss, played by Ben Lam. And she also stars as another Maria, which happens to be a robot created in the other Maria's image. Maria the robot is supposed to do the bidding of Maria the evil mole, but somehow the construct is uh, reprogrammed by Curly, which is naturally played by John Shum. It's, uh, so some people are always called fatty in movies. John Shum more than often got to be called Curly because he looks like it. It's his hair. You know, they didn't style, they do a restyle of him in movies. Nope, just arrive as you as you are, John. You know, and if you are the producer, no one's going to tell you to do stuff to adjust to the role, right? Like, so just do what you want. Be Curly. And uh, he, uh, he uh, the construct is reprogrammed by Curly and Whiskey, played by Choi Hak. With all new programming, Maria the Robot starts to fight for good, ultimately leading her into a confrontation with Maria the Evil Mole. So, so yeah. Uh, short opinion, uh, why don't I go first? Uh, this is fun. The, the pairing of uh, John 
and Choi Hak isn't hilarity as such, but they both bring enough energy to make this fun, pleasant, entertaining, and the effects showcase is, you know, it's part, part slow budget, but it's always creatively staged. Uh, and Hong Kong doing sci-fi, as we alluded to, can be risky, but uh, director David Chung wisely doesn't go all out with the sci-fi design, uh, so uh, I quite enjoyed it. So, in short, uh, what did you think of I Love Maria? I, I didn't get a chance to see this in the cinema because I didn't really start watching Hong Kong films in the cinema until late 88. So this was a this was a release earlier in the year. So I didn't really come to this until years later when it was on video, even though I'd heard of the, the title. And I had high expectations originally because of the obvious design reference back to Metropolis, um, which is, you know, considered amongst science fiction, sort of the pinnacle or originator of, of science fiction film. We can go back to, you know... Um, French films, you know, Trip to the Moon and stuff like that. But Metropolis is, you know, when they teach science fiction film, at, at some point you're going to have an entire lesson on Metropolis. And the idea that when I went into this film thinking my expectations were so high, when I first saw it, I came and I was like, what did I just watch? You know, I, I was very disappointed. So sitting down and watching this again, um, it's been a while since I've seen it. I liked it better than when I originally watched it because I knew the first time that I didn't like it <laughs> that much. But it's still not, I think, a really great film because it's not, I mean, it, this is the problem with science fiction in Hong Kong is that it's not really science fiction. It, in fact, it's much more fantasy than science fiction. It, it, it simply borrows cultural elements. And this is, this is problematic for both the films we're going to talk about this week. So I like it, but not that much, is my short opinion. Well, well, well yeah, it sort of feeds into my opinion, I think, because, uh, you know, the pairing isn't fantastic or anything, but it's sort of a, it's a novelty. And that, that makes it fun to watch. And th there is some effects, an effects showcase that is within grasp of, uh, of uh, Hong Kong technicians and, you know, cast and crew and stuff. But uh, we'll get to that. Let's focus a little bit on uh, director David Chung. Because as few movies as he made, they are fairly notable in my opinion. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, he shot many of your favorite Hong Kong movies. He's uh, more of a uh, cinematographer. But he's a capable director of um, of uh, comedy, in my opinion, of action, uh, Royal Warriors, and uh, even bigger widescreen action, which would be Magnificent Warrior, Warriors. And uh, the small-scale thriller, which was his last movie, Web of Deception, was something I quite enjoyed. So uh, uh, the few, he did a few movies, but there was always a, a fair professional touch to it. And uh, certainly with Magnificent Warriors, he could really helm something big budget and uh, again like full widescreen adventure so I, I remember it being fun any any general impression of uh, of uh, david's movies so throughout your viewing habits um yeah i like it's a drink it's a bomb mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a bit more my speed one of the few hong kong christmas movies if you will yeah yeah but you know it again it, if you look at him as a director he doesn't have a lot of movies under his belt and i think when you look at his filmography as a cinematographer, you go, oh, yeah, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. I mean, so many films that he had a role in in, in our classic sort of Hong Kong cinema now. I'm just wondering if that's where his forte is. And even in this film, I mean, you look at it and there's some cinematic moments that are really great. And there's, there's one moment in particular that I'll mention that's years before a very famous sort of Hollywood moment, and I'm wondering, you know, if it's just by coincidence or, or by design, 
that we see that in a, in a movie later. Um, and I'll mention that a little bit. It certainly is playful. It is designed as a comedy, and even uh, the workshop logo, workshop logo, or film workshop, gets uh, a different music sting this time around. You know, there's some synth playing over the workshop logo. So Choi Huck is clearly not uh, keeping tight reins on on certain things. Like let's let's just have a little fun with the logo, even a, a minor observation. But let let me still throw it back to you. You mentioned the Metropolis uh, reference uh, and the inspiration, but. Where do you think the inspiration came from to make this type of Hong Kong movie? Is it coming purely from Terminator and Robocop, or is there more inspirations uh, feeding into I Love Maria, since it is a comedy after all, and not uh, this gloomy, gloomy thing? Well, yeah, I think that it's you know borrowing from quite a bit. I mean, if you look at so what you have in terms of the story is you have this gang called the Hero Gang. Uh, they've got an agenda which isn't really clear, but it, you know, it, it makes for action cinema basically where, you know, they're doing bad stuff and they're trying to overcome the cops and they want to somehow take control of Hong Kong in, in sort of their long view. But they've got technical experts that work for them that have created this giant robot called Pioneer One. Now, Pioneer One, for anime fans out there, you'll say, oh, that looks very much like the Zaku design from Gundam. Uh, and because that's exactly what it is. It's I mean, really well. It's live action, though. So yeah, you know, and it it's it for the for the era. It's great. I mean, it's a pretty good model. And I'm guessing you know they do a lot of zoom ins and close ups and camera tricks to to perhaps make it look bigger than it is. But you know, compared to a lot of the other robots that you have out there, such as you know the one in I forget its name, the one in Gen Y Cops and things. I mean. This this is pretty good for the era. Did, did it have a name, the Gen Y Cops robot? Or what yes, <laughs> yes, it did, and I can't remember the name. Okay. Uh, not not the trash can one, um, but the the other one. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, the, so they're they're definitely borrowing from different cultural appropriations in terms of some of the science fiction usage here. At the same time, some it seems like maybe. A lot of their budget went to those designs to the Maria, you know, because they've got two different Maria suits. They've got Pioneer One, and then they've got this thing Pioneer Three, which is more of a model miniature at times. And and the main point is, I think that they had so much money going in to this play, to these things, that they kind of cheaped out in other areas. So, for example, there's an extensive period of time when they're got when the the two characters, John Shum. Uh, as Curly and Tsui Whiskey, they're just kind of out at this lighthouse. <laughs> and they're just kind of there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they can't do anything else, really. And and it isn't the fastest moving uh, aspects of the movie, their interaction. I mean, I, I find it uh, more of a novelty and sort of entertaining. But it's it, it's why I think it's maybe they were forced to, but I still think I, I can deem it as wise. As if they can't go all out with the sci-fi design well, Let's sort of make it a modern movie, but with a few few elements like the Pioneer one, because that's as much as we can make. But let's yeah. show that we have the technical expertise to pull this off. And I, I have to agree, like there are some uh, impressive full shots of the Pioneer robot, which uh, you know I don't know if there's a. Uh, someone in that suit it looks mighty big i don't know if anyone a, a, a full person can operate that thing but it looks big and i think it's well designed even though it might be a rip-off design but and the whole detachable parts thing that they are they ride a lot to this movie where where you know the arms detach and uh, and uh take out people that that's all good fun and uh good i i say good fun but 
there are signs of this being a Hong Kong movie, of course, because that robot just kills people left and right. And there's some gory stuff in the beginning of the movie, too. So if you, if you went in with your kitties, uh, then there's going to be some uh, things to sh- shield her eyes for, for a few moments of bloodshed uh, here and there. But what we see here, that it, there are signs of Hong Kong ingenuity, you know, staging what they can stage. Uh, certainly with Choi Hak involved, uh, that was someone leading, you know, technical revolution in terms of effects. This might not be the next best thing, but I was impressed of what I saw here. We it, it, we don't get like robot designs where they just open open them up and we see a few wires and blinking lights. No, no they they kind of try a bit more than that, which is certainly uh, something I take away from the movie. But but again, it's not perfect throughout, uh, and uh, that might be as Paul said. The victim of uh, putting all their all into these technical aspects means that the in-between stuff is not as strong as it uh, perhaps could have been. Maybe it's down to actors as well. You know, John Shum, as much as we like him, is not the go-to guy to elevate each and every production that we have. I mean, as much as I like the pom-pom movies, Paul, I think that character, that man-child... It's tiresome. <laughs> if you watch the Pom Pom movie, like his uh, his inability to to act uh, act it out, uh, being almost a bit mentally challenged, that can be a bit tiresome. So uh, it's not uh, certainly goal, but uh, but hey, at least uh, at least Troy Hawk in front of the camera for one movie is uh, is a novelty, uh, if you will. One one other quick reference that uh, you know fans might make a connection to the car that they drive is kind of a up hearse i guess in some ways and it's not exactly reminiscent of the the ghostbusters vehicle but in some ways it is it's kind of like a hybrid between the ghostbusters vehicle except it's got kind of a blow of the engine so it's like they crossed mad max with ghostbusters somehow to create this sort of souped up rocket car that they drive around in and again you know it's 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 a credible looking it's not like they just slapped a couple panels on something it looks like they spent considerable time and energy into the design for that vehicle as well. I think pace, though, plays a, a, a decent enough part in uh, in this because it's a fairly fast-moving uh, movie. You know, it has its loose frame plot and there seems like there's no time to lose. You just got to keep moving forward. Uh, you have the big uh, failure of taking down Pioneer 1. Well, one or two scenes later, cut to uh, Dennis Chan and scientists having come up with a gun. We got a gun. We got to test it now. We have a gun to take out Pioneer One. So stand in front of the gun, you know. In the case of um, in the case of uh, this movie, Curly, and they put a bulletproof vest on him and just blast him into the sandbags with this, you know, minigun, but way more powerful minigun. So that's sort of a fun little scene, but also a sign of the movie isn't really standing still. Not yet, anyway. I mean, again, again, the scenes with John and Choyak, they make the movie stand still a little bit but but i appreciate that, appreciate that it uh, does move forward and uh really doesn't let us uh ponder too much i suppose uh, coming from someone who likes the crappier movies out there you know uh, where with crappier robot designs it, it's a little bit of a relief to see that the person they have in one of the maria suits is uh, probably a very uh, thin and petite person and that looks way better than something that I love, uh, like Robo Vampire, you know, because in Robo Vampire it's more it looks more like cloth, and they just add that zzz, 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 and the stiff moving, and to see it work 
way more better than that was something I appreciated. At least like the person in that suit and later Maria uh, Salia. You know, at least they, they act according to to you know what she is, I suppose. So, so I, I wasn't bothered by by any of that because it's it's still in in the name of fun. But uh, you know, those touches, I, I could appreciate that uh, that uh, they're doing well. It's very like uh, it's all it's already ongoing and uh, and fun. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Choi Hak, who uh, enters the movie as uh, you know a, a drunk guard that's uh, taken advantage of uh, seemingly by uh, by Kirk Wong and his uh, cronies, if you will, uh, Kirk Wong in a tiny cameo. So, in terms of Choi Hak, the actor in a big role, how does it fare in your eyes? Choi Hak is not a like you said he he's not really a name draw as an actor, and neither is John Shum. I mean, usually they're in they're better, I think, in supporting roles. And and cameos, and here I mean he's it's because the two of them are at odds, right? John Shum works for the police, and he's part of the the he's a part of the hero gang, and he has a direct sort of history with the uh, human Maria character, and he doesn't he you know basically throughout the movie he's just trying to keep his head down. He doesn't want to be involved with anybody. He just wants to drink and 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 that's it. So a lot of it is like John Shum's character trying to convince him to uh, do the right thing, do the right thing. And the two of them, in in a way, it becomes sort of a buddy cop slash road trip kind of movie at times. He's fine for what he does, but it's not very expansive for me. I mean, it, there, there's, not a, uh, there's not a great character arc <laughs> or anything. And a lot of times it's more of, Hey, that's Soy Hark. You know, he's just there. He's 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 on screen because he he doesn't get an image do over either. That's exactly what he would look like if he was in uh, producing or directing capacity. Uh, but only this time, it's uh, he's in front of the camera. The only image do over they give him is a little bit of makeup later in the film after he's being beat up. But otherwise, it's just turn up and be Choi Hark for for an entire movie this time. Uh, you, you wonder if he was the one pushing for this, or if someone else was like, hey. You're funny. Like, like, be in a movie. You're funny. Like, sure? You sure? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But he, but he got into a more um, serious role in, in a movie I don't remember much from, uh, but he was okay, I guess. Um, uh, Patrick Tam's uh, Final Victory with uh, Choi Hak and Loletta Lee and uh, and uh, Eric Zhang. More serious movie. Had some arty touches. He plays a gangster. Uh, so that that is more of an image to over. But I don't remember the movie imprinting itself akin to other Patrick Tam movies. I mean, I'm a big fan of The Sword and uh, not as big of a fan of My Heart is That Internal Rose, but I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting that and obviously after this are exiled many years later. Is that a movie you ever saw, remember Choi Huck's uh, performance in? Uh, it's been a long time. I'd have to go back and and rewatch it to refresh my memory. Yeah, it's probably the second movie where it gets more of an extended uh, extended role. It's still... It's still uh, supporting let's go back a, a little bit to um, other sci-fi movies because there aren't many around this time there was a movie produced uh, called final test the austin y i think and uh, so certainly yun y is in it as as a robot also does didn't it was part, part prison movie i think but it is sci-fi and it tried some more elaborate sci-fi design but really couldn't do much uh, probably with uh, you know it it didn't blow up Hong Kong cinema with this grand new scope, but it did try it admirably well. I think it was more focused on action, I think, uh, violence and action. So I remember it being okay. But uh, 
what what about other sci-fi tinted movies over the years more modern movies did the following bunch bring anything actually critically worthwhile to the table such as wesley's mysterious files city under siege metal attraction kung fu cyborg i mean are are any of them like any any high watermark technically for sci-fi or they're they're completely horrible they all do bring something to the table i think uh, the wisely series whether you're looking at uh, you know uh, the andy lau one or the one with um uh sam hoy you know they they all bring something to the table and they have a sort of a good background in literature so that's always something although different directors you know uh, there's a lot of hate for the wong jing version <laughs> of that uh of that take but of course you've also got the classic category three robo tricks right i mean uh you, you know we can't we can't overlook that uh branches over into that genre and again here but with a lot of these there's not a lot of thought into the actual science fiction it's more of a well science fiction is a thing it's popular in the west and it's something we can do that's different from a ghost story film so you know let's try it but we got to throw more money at it basically because it's not a it's not a typical costume piece where we can go to the shaw studio wardrobe and dig out a bunch of period costumes and you know do a bit of touch up on them or something like that. You know, it's they often have to create entirely new things, entirely new props or big robot suits. Or if you look at the more modern variations, of course, then it's delving into CG. And the more modern variations, I don't think, fare any better. You look at like Kung Fu Cyborg or, you know, Andy's uh, more current namesake, Future X Cops. And, you know, a lot of them are just considered to be bad movies. Um, where the sci-fi element is not fully thought through. It is just simply co-opting an idea that's been done lots of times uh, in Western cinema. And when you think about it in terms of what they're trying to do, the story they're trying to tell, fans of science fiction will go, wait a minute, that's just nonsense. That's more like fantasy than science fiction. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the films can't be entertaining for other reasons. Um, and again, you know, that's why we like coming back and talking to a lot of these films, even though a lot of people consider them to be quite terrible. Um, with this film here, I think the thing that I really appreciated was, as I said, they did do sort of three different designs or outfits for the Maria character. So at one point you have Sally, yeah, the robot, the Pioneer 2 robot in, as, in sort of black frame uh, metallic wear, but she has her full human head, then later, they change her over to full silver color metallic wear, but then they've got her with a headpiece that looks very uncomfortable, even <laughs> though she fits in it, that's much more reminiscent of the Maria from Metropolis. And then, of course, they, at times by the end, they are able to just make her look completely human, which is a very long stretch. I mean, for, for, given the technology that we know exists, you know, um, here, here we, we are definitely, you know, asking the audience to suspend their disbelief and, that, and that's fine. You know, the interesting thing that they do do here, and I don't know if this is coming from the script writer or this was uh, a choice by the producers, Tui Hark and John Shum, is that there is a kind of role reversal here because for those who know Metropolis, the you know the basic story is that you have this live human character who's beloved and she's you know seen as a a force for good and they create the maria robot 
to usurp her, right, as sort of a, a changeling, a chameleon to to come out and ruin her reputation. And so, in in a sense, the Maria robot is bad, you know, is is an antagonist in in Metropolis. And here, it's kind of the reverse. They have this character in Maria, played by Salia as a human, who's terrible. You know, she's like this this number two in the triad gang, and she's you know, totally head over heels for Ben Lamb, who treats her like dirt. And I don't, you know, it's one of those relationships where you go, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But, you know, it is what it is. And then you have the robot version, which gets co-opted by our heroes and becomes this force for good against the hero gang, right? So it's an interesting sort of reversal of the original intentions of the use of the robot in um, Metropolis uh, and, they, and how they've kind of flipped it on its head here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've never actually seen Metropolis, but um, I'm thinking now is probably the good time to buy it because the more I read about it, it seems like they're discovering more and more of the lost footage and are try and are almost like done piecing Metropolis together. Or um, uh, because at one point there was some some stuff missing that's now in it, so maybe now is the time to to go for it. I I actually be, be, before we get to the comedy, I, I wanted just to stress that uh, I, I really dig the effects work here. There's not as much of superimposed effects going on here a lot of it is done in camera make it is a very physical movie where we do get the effects showcase a lot of the uh of the inserts of you know extended arms and uh, rockets flying into robots and explosions and so forth all of that is done in camera like this movie feels physical that's not something you're probably not going to get the feel that you're not going to get out of those more recent movies that we talked of, you know, um, Kung Fu Cyborg and what have you, and uh, I, I'm I'm that kind of viewer that attach more to this stuff. I know it's low budget, but it's still executed with, you know, with an energy and a pace that Hong Kong cinema was capable of, uh, uh, even though they're dealing with, you know, um, some bigger designs than they might be used to. But they, it's not out of out of the realm of. Uh, possibility to for them to do this i think uh you know look look, look at the movie fairly early there's not that much uh, you know added uh, cartoon effects if you were like into future cops that obviously because of the material they're working from that's what they're gonna do but i i don't think there's a lot, a lot of stuff in here like her eyes glow at one point you know uh, the maria robot but that's that's pretty much it you know, you know when we see robot arms and stuff that's stuff that's above the actor's hands and things like that so yep you don't need to do a, a, anything more fancy than that sometimes you know yeah we recently talked about um a film uh, somewhat from this era too places go places Two, which featured um sort of robots facing off against other robots and comparably in that film you have a lot of these sort of on-screen graphics done through the I guess on film animation at the time where they used to draw on the film or draw on a second piece of film and superimpose it to give you those sort of, you know, these least like laser gun style effects. And they don't do that here. What you really see here in terms of the action is a, a lot that's very comparable to martial arts films of the era because you have action director um, Tony Ching, Ching Su Tong, who's doing stuff that he's very well versed in. So a lot of times like the Maria robot is flying up or flying horizontally in a frame. And you've got, as you said, you've got the Pioneer One's rocket arms being blasted off, which is, you know, something very, very common from giant robot anime. 
but the way it's shot here is very reminiscent of things like flying swords or flying people who were doing, you know, uh, martial arts attacks that, that you're very familiar with if you've watched a lot of martial arts Hong Kong cinema, especially cinema under his uh, sort of action direction. What I don't think holds up too well for me is the gunplay because yeah. a lot of the gunplay is just like bang, 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 bang. And then they've got, I don't know if it's squibs or just basic firework pyrotechnics just going off all over the place. And it's so frenetic and so random that a lot of times, you you know, it's like they cut from a scene of like half a dozen triad guys shooting their guns to the, you know, counter shot of John Shum or Tsui Hark getting fired at but it's just like random explosions there's there's not really a good strong sense of that and again i understand i think that again they shot most of their budget in the maria scenes and the pioneer one scenes, so they probably weren't thinking too deeply you know they weren't thinking about this in terms of gun foo or you know something along the lines of a john woo choreographed gunfight but a lot of times it just became so much of this breakdown between the guys using guns and the people getting shot at um, in terms of, you know, what we're seeing um, that it just that those scenes didn't hold up well for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, because even that scene where the where Bad Maria uh, and her henchmen, they attach to like trees of and then they all glide uh, like, like it seems like they're gliding with, uh, using vines in the jungle. But they're gliding. Yeah. They're gliding for a long time. So I'm just wondering: did they attach to uh, like uh, some sort of system up there in the trees that uh, um, where because they go for a good kilometer or something like that before they stop shooting at uh, whoever they were chasing, probably Choi Hak and, and John Shum. So I could see some sloppiness there. They didn't do one little thing across a pond to get to the other side of the pond. They they, they were just gliding for a good amount also on in 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 those wires. So it's a wine foo a wine foo almost. So so yeah, I, I, I agree that that wasn't certainly the most inspired action direction here. But let's go back a little bit to uh, Choi Hak and John Shum. They are the leads after all and it, again going back to this pairing, the feeling of this pairing, it's more again to emphasize it's it's pretty cool as an idea, I like this idea to, ha- to have them in their own movie, and uh, you know they meet and and they have they have the relationship that you established uh, when discussing it. But they're not really there for gags; they're more there for banter. Chohako obviously isn't a comedian; he is a director, <laughs> so it's okay. It squeezes into okay. I mean that balance of bantering back and forth that that tone is okay, but. It's and it's also not overly loud and broad. That uh, they're not trying too hard, but at the same time, they're not doing much with the pairing. Like the most they do is that, and it wasn't funny. That whole section where they get electro- electrocuted in various ways. Yeah, that's what, one of my notes. Was that that went the, the electrocution gags in this went on way too long? Exactly. I like they, they found a gag that they thought they could. Okay, we can vary it up, but it really did not work as such so i think it was wise to keep them more to okay we're let's banter a little bit and let's make the movie move forward that way rather than us becoming the next well not next it's pre but uh you know just for, for the sake of example like uh, they're not the the hidden stephen chow and matat pairing that uh not at all the funniest bit 
but it was more due to John Chung. It wasn't them together. At one point, they almost drive over Paul Chun, a police, uh, police inspector. And as they drive towards him, they don't panic by shouting at the same time, Wah! but Robert John Chung starts laughing. Ha, ah, it's funny. <laughs> and I thought I was like, whoa, cold. <laughs> that kicked into him. It's funny. Uh, not sure if he actually said that verbally on the Cantonese track, but that, that's, that was the subtitles. That was what the subtitles uh, uh, did. So I guess the funnier bits between them and that involves Sally is the dueling commands scene because they, they programmed the robot to say as long as you say I love Curly then you can command her to do something and that back and forth of course was funny as they try and get an advantage I suppose or take out each other they're a little bit uh, a little bit antagonistic against each other at that point found out fairly acceptable in terms of judging Sally S work here I think she does fine but I think I don't know if there's this robot role was very demanding. She's a great actress, great comedic actress, but I'm not sure it was very demanding, but she is the robot. You can feel she's the robot. She acts in the... And that image of her as the robot, that's entirely fun, but I don't know if that was a stretch for her. I think she's done more, you know, better work and more challenging work. Yeah, certainly not unlikable, not at all. I, I, I just love the idea of her playing that and the other role, but... In terms of Salier reference work, we, we we certainly don't get that here for my money's worth. Uh, or, or what do you think? Yeah, watching Sally. No, I think she's great, and and I don't mean to sound like Trump when I say that. <laughs> I just great, tremendous, great. Um, but comparably, I mean, a more recent film from what was it, last year, or year before, with Ekin Chang and Chrissy Chow called I Girl, where you get to see Chrissy Chow, ex pseudo model and now actress get to basically play a sort of contemporary robot. And she's fine there too. But what I appreciate by comparison here is that Sally Yeh has a ton of stuff she's wearing through much of the movie. And, and don't forget, it's a dual role. So she's not just acting as the robot. She's also acting as sort of the evil gang leader. So she's being asked to do to play it in such a way so that it really see, feels separate Yep. And there's a lot of antagonism between the human Maria character and the the robot Maria, which I think she plays off fairly effectively. And I like the fact that because she's a robot, she's not, you know, she's basically a programmable device and she's not playing it off as like super emotional. There, You know, you think at a certain point, because we, we forget to mention that this film does have uh, Tony Leung Chiwai, who's kind of just thrown on as a also starring, you know, that would never pass today no. <laughs> because he's become, you know, so huge. Super geeky. Doesn't look like the suave Tony that we know and love, uh, we, yeah. which is uh, to his credit that these people can go from that kind of role to geeky roles, even when they are established. Uh, I Tony was established, I think, for at least one movie, you know, People's Hero. I think he won the award for that. But uh, otherwise, it's uh, you tend to forget about him. That's why I didn't yeah. mention him. <laughs> it's He's fairly forgettable and he is very nerdy. Spends most of the movie just losing his camera and his film, and that's fine. But you would expect that in a normal sort of cookie-cutter film, which is one thing you can kind of appreciate about this film because it doesn't follow sort of the normal romantic comedy cookie-cutter. The thing you expect is that, yes, he is going to have a romance with the Maria robot. They do have some interactions that kind of maybe point to that direction. They never take it anywhere. 
um, which I think is great because she doesn't, as a automaton, she doesn't have that capability, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't really, you know, have the have the emotional. She just follows commands, and she learns a few things that she doesn't understand, like you know, uh, humans can't drink oil, and, and and this kind of thing that I think they played a humorous effect. So for me, her performance as the Maria robot was more physical, and that's what I paid attention to her as a performer, as a singer, as a dancer, yeah. where she's doing, you know. It's a little bit stereotypical because yes, she's kind of doing the robot, you know, the, the the as a as a dance move kind of thing. But that's what you do. That's what the role calls for, and I think it works. And, and even down to little twists of her head in certain scenes, I appreciated the nuance that she brought to it that I think a a regular actress might not have been able to do quite as well. And I, you know, again, I think she's drawing from her stage performances and and her choreography you know, dance and that kind of stuff that she was used to doing elsewhere. And I think it helped the role. Again, it's not a deep role because I don't think it's supposed to be, but I do appreciate what she brought to it. And the fact that she just was game to wear, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically all that stuff. I mean, I've read interviews with, uh, you know, people like Anthony Daniels, who did uh, C-3PO and Star Wars, you know, and that's not comfortable stuff. To, to have on for hours, uh, you know, on end, even if it's just the upper torso part because it's a close-up or something. Um, you know, so I give her a lot of credit for saying, yeah, I'll do this. You know, I, it's not like she necessarily, you know, a new actress would jump at it because they're a new actress, but she already had success, um, you know, and it was not something that she necessarily had to put up with to find success, so... And always game. You're very right. Because she 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 established critical praise already by this point, uh, and uh, it's uh, something I think goes a little bit unmentioned sometimes. How versatile she was, mainly because her big international movie is The Killer, which she she's not bad in it, but it's far from my favorite performance. Uh, if anything, it's uh, Shanghai Blues, where I think she's uh, just pure delight and uh, you know a, a bubbly comedic slapsticky performance that could have gone so wrong in the hands of mm. another actress but so early in her career that was uh that was sharp and, and certainly uh, i think working with working with choi hark is not something that she's it, it doesn't look like she, she disliked it necessarily <laughs> she comes alive in in those movies uh picking up blue is obviously a swell david chung the director ultimately i think he he initiates and he executes without taking on more than he can handle because again i think budget restrictions are there but i think i think ultimately to keep it fairly modern in look and feel is is the okay choice even if they were forced to make that choice in a way based on budget uh, it isn't funny the movie necessarily I, I didn't laugh that much but i i came away thinking it was, it was very pleasant yes it has a little bit of violence but yes it came off as being very pleasant and uh you know towards the end you got further quality action mixing in well with the pleasant tone without wowing us necessarily but i think the pioneer one robot continues to look great uh, we get big glimpses and not just millisecond glimpses of the of the suit and it might be cheap depiction of weaponry all of this when missiles go back and forth obviously that stuff is on wires but that's all on camera man and it's shot with clarity which is something you rarely get nowadays and uh, it's all very era specific but very well done for the era and uh, the whole movie is a bit of a novelty obviously being that Hong Kong didn't do sci-fi or robot movies necessarily this wasn't the trend for 1988 and you had a 
giant fat robot movie and a, you know an anti lao robot movie at the same time no so it's all pleasant and fun without being a, a big classic or anything and uh, i would argue i wouldn't argue against that i have high expectations this sound awesome uh, as you told uh, as you told us of your uh, of your story of the uh, with the film rather but it's it's all i think is recommended if you like all these people and uh, you might not crave choi hack in front of a camera after this but he did it man and uh, his loony bits in movies they are funnier but um i don't mind that we got this at all it's not a waste of time for everybody involved and uh, even if they it failed critically and box office wise because they were in it these people did not go into unemployment right <laughs> because they're multi-talented anyway then him being a director and Sally, Sally Amber likes being a singer as well. So no, it's not a waste of anybody's time, I think. Uh, that It didn't sink anyone. So I, I have some minor notes on what I think you have notes on as well. And that, that includes um, cut footage from the film. But uh, we'll, we'll get to it uh, naturally within the availability, I suppose. But uh, any other notes before we get to those sections? Uh, yeah, just a couple things. If you're not a big sci-fi robots, rockets kind of fan, you can get a little bit of sort of traditional action because Lam Ching Ying is in the film. He plays sort of the mentor of um, uh, Tsui Hark's character, and he's part of the hero gang, and he gets a short action sequence. If I remember, he fights against Ben Lam uh, in one or two places, and so, you know, it, it does have some of the sort of traditional hand, fist, foot kind of stuff going on. One of the things I love about old films with practical effects is when I watch them over and over, I like to try and deconstruct the practical effects. And so since this was a rewatch for me and I kind of knew the story, I was paying more attention to the design of Pioneer One. You know, you can't do this with a movie today like, you know, Transformers or um, Future X Cops because everything is so much based in, in CG design. But if you notice at a certain point when you're watching this, Pioneer One has this round part in the middle of his chest that he then sends out as a kind of a tracking device. And that thing is just a repurposed slide projector. There is it. I mean, thought that looked you, great, though, as, <laughs> as in a movie, when lit and all of that. That looked great. But If you look at it very closely, you'll see that, yeah, it, 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 once, the, once it flips over, it's just a slide projector that they kind of threw some paint on and threw a couple more pieces of plastic on it. But it's great because, you know, that's what they used to do in these old 70s sci-fi movies. They used to just take modern appliances and turn them upside down and spray paint them or add a couple, you know, add a vacuum pipe on it or something. And, you know, they create these fantastic looking physical props. And and that's a that's for me something that I really appreciate. It's an art form that is today used in cosplay and cosplay conventions and not many other places anymore because you know, cinema now relies so much on computers. You can look forward to some fun pieces like that if you want to sort of dissect the film a little bit. You wonder if the makers of uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey had that in mind, that we, we love that stuff when th- things are like put together that way as they made the uh, Bill and Ted robots uh, for uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the one that actually mm. good Bill and Ted put together going to, um, you know, uh, using uh, the, uh, the uh, contents of the hardware store, you know, uh, yeah, because yeah. Uh, those robots look great, but they're made out of, you know, there's vacuum cleaner parts there, but you can all see it, though. It isn't like smoothly covered up or anything. It's just, uh, you know, station p- puts it all together. So the other, the other final note that I have is the end, the yes. end credits we have here continue the story on. 
And not a lot, I mean, a lot of Hong Kong cinema became famous for just showing scenes from the movie again as the credits rolled. Then you got sort of the Jackie Chan take where he, instead of doing that, he would show outtakes where the stunts didn't work well. And But this is a, a, one of the rare cases where you actually have a continuation of story. And I don't know if they did that over the credits because they just felt it was, you know, sort of light fluff or they had, they had actually planned to do it during that period. Um, but for me, that's some of the funnest moment of the film because it's, you know, it's just silent storytelling of the, the characters together and, and sort of what they're doing uh, after the film's end. And I wanted so much more of that. <laughs> than the- there are elements, rather of uh, cut footage from the film not only at the end but uh, we we got stuff in the trailer that involves uh, John Shum climbing a a flagpole a, he's essentially being bullied at the police station there's stuff there but i agree the way they deal with the coda rather than to add an additional 2 or 3 minutes with dialogue and subtitles they get it over with very quickly there's a medal ceremony there's a bar celebration and then they do a little pose in the streets together with again the Maria robot now in full human form for whatever, for whatever reason. It's not like they just put clothes on top of the metal stuff. It looks like well, we just created flesh for the entire thing now. Uh, but I, I agree that's how you take good care of it rather than pad it all. And um, did you spot the cameo by a famous director in the cut footage? Uh, it doesn't doesn't come to mind. So who did I miss? You missed John Woo. Jung Woo oh. appears. Uh, he gives out the medals at the uh, at the celebration, but uh, but the trailer, if you ever uh, come across it, he actually plays the superior of Paul Chun earlier in the film. So Jung Woo had a cameo here at least for two scenes. So you can see him at the end credits, like, like you know, clapping and stuff and smiling. So I don't think it was a necessary scene to to have in there necessarily, just by just because John John did a cameo, because I think that's all it was. You know, at most a two scene thing. You know. Two minutes, possibly. If you, if you watch the Laserdisc, uh, a friend of mine told me that if you listen to how the Laserdisc sounds, you can hear audible jump cuts. You know, So clearly, this was either cut down or sort of sloppily, scenes were sort of sloppily excised, and then the cinema edit got uh, put before us, and certainly these scenes were not saved for future supplements on Laserdisc or DVDs. Uh, that's just how Hong Kong cinema works, man. Even even the great uh, Bruce Lee and all his classic movies, uh, those those lost pieces of footage, those went into the garbage bin because who cares about this stuff? Which is a shame, of course. But uh, and 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 it's not unusual to see extra scenes in the trailer. You know, regardless, it's not the, that this is the, the isolated example of uh, of uh, more of uh, I love Maria. But uh, yeah, so so go back to to the end credits and see a smiley John Woo hand out some medals and stuff. And uh, as for availability, this was issued on Japanese DVD by Gaga Communications once upon a time. But in, f- in fact, this was a megastar created disc with all the expected options, including English subtitles. It would have had would have gone onto the Hong Kong market this exact way, but it actually never did. Uh, that is now expectedly out of print, um, and the Joy Sales Hong Kong DVD under the banner of uh, the Legendary Collection seems hard to get as well, and it's even gone from certain listings. I could not find it as I Love Maria on Yes Asia, for instance, so it seems like it might be hard to get, but hopefully you can find used copies. Uh, the movie was known internationally as Robo Force and had a few minutes of comedy cut from it, and I, I have an 
a link in the show post uh, that shows this uh, through screenshots, what they cut. And among the places this was issued on home video was on Australian VHS, but I imagine this is quite rare now. And as expected, there are a lot of the minutes, uh, a few minutes of uh, Choi Hak and John Shum comedy that was trimmed from the international version, but it didn't, didn't look like a ton of stuff. But uh, there, there's a whole scene of uh, in the countryside where they're pondering whether they should kill a dog and eat it or not, and that was, uh, which they don't. That was expectedly cut from the international version because it did slow down matters, and who wants to see a scene where two guys ponder killing a dog? That was I love Maria. Let's uh, take a musical break and listen to some some something from Future Cops from 1993. And uh, once upon a time, I hated this with my entire being. Let's see if getting older and definitely a lot more stupid, stupider, has changed my perception of Future Cops, aka Wong Jing does Street Fighter, even though he can't. So uh, let's take a musical break and then we'll talk all about it. And welcome back, and the second review of this episode is Future Cops from 1993, and plot from the Far East Films review of the film goes as follows. In Hong Kong of the near future, well, 2043, so it's quite far away, so a vicious supervillain is about to stand trial for his numerous crimes, and knowing he's heading for jail, where without any doubt, he sends his cohorts back in time to assassinate the presiding judge. With shades of Terminator 2... The villains go back to face a high school version of the soon-to-be-respected judge, which is played by in the 1993 portions by Dickie Chung, and uh, the plot is to get rid of him. Thankfully, three of the eponymous future cops, played by Andy Lau, Jackie Chung and Simon Yam, are also sent back to defend the youth and make sure he can get through those all-important school years. After various comic incidents, mostly emanating from the future cops' ability to impress the high school girls, the two opposing opposing factions are forced into a wild and frenetic final battle. In short, short, Paul, what did you think of uh, future cops? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing me on this episode to talk about future cops. Because now I'm mad and I got a platform for it. No, no, I'm, I'm not mad as heck and not going to take it anymore. Um, this film is, as I think I said to you on on uh, social media, this is the nectar to my honeybee, right? This is what makes me love Hong Kong cinema. Now, I know this is a much derided and hated film. I think, you know, our friend Kozo over at Love HK Film basically says that, you know, if a Surgeon General ever wanted to outlaw films for harmful side effects, then they should start with this film. He often <laughs> says he likes to use this film as the, you know, the the bar for the worst film ever made. <laughs> I, I'm not in that camp. You know, this is not a good film, but it's a fun film. And it is, for me, you know, sort of the frenetic, crazy, slap stuff together, put some big names on there, borrow everything you can from popular culture kind of hodgepodge that I fell in love with when, you know, I, I started watching Hong Kong cinema. 
So yeah, I am so thankful that you brought me on to talk ab- about this film. It's not a good film. But no, it's, it's a not. fun film. It's a fun film. Well, I've gone from hating the movie to feeling the movie is more tolerable. Um, it's made in a frenzied way, visually, effects-wise, and comedically. But and, and that's all fun. But th- th- there's a fair amount of comedy that doesn't break through. It's uh, but it's fun to see game actors and the action team totally getting the vibe that possibly Street Fighter could represent in a live action. Uh, representation. I only know of the energy of Street Fighter through the games, you know, and they're not adventure games, they're not store-driven games as far as I know, they're merely fighters. But, you know, it's a fair amount of fun, and certainly I agree on those points that this is the Hong Kong cinema I fell in love with, but I certainly don't find the movie funny, though. But it's a, a certain amount of fun is present here, and it's fun to watch. If I told you I laughed once, then that that's one, the truth, but it's not the kiss of death for the movie necessarily. So, so yeah, I, I, I've gone from hating it to feeling it's tolerable and I, I, I'd gladly watch it again. But let, let's go back to basics. Do you think Wang Jing was aiming to get the rights to names and likenesses from the Street Fighter universe, Street Fighter 2 universe, if you will? But when that was rejected uh, by whoever owns it, Capcom, maybe? Was this a case of, well, let's as a production let's just go forward and make the movie within lore and present our version of street fighter but with changed names and likenesses and that kind of thing like like do, do you think that was the case he, they, they said no but we're gonna do it anyway but within the lore and we're gonna make it so everybody recognizes who these characters are anyway yeah i think that's exactly what happened if we look at the year 1993 you have earlier in the year uh wong jing doing city hunter with jackie chan but that must have cleared rights though the section in city hunter that must have been cleared with capcom right you know i think so um but when i was researching this film the only thing that i could come up with was that there was an attempt to clear rights for this film but because of production or whatever they were they were shooting for uh, they couldn't get it in time, or it was outright refused. I'm not sure which one. Because the City Hunter sequence, that it had literally you know, a Street Fighter 2 arcade and Jackie as Chun-Li. That's my theory, in a way, that they got the rights to do it for a little bit in City Hunter, but was refused to do it for a full movie, yeah. in this case. Uh, and, and maybe because they had the name Jackie Chan behind it, Capcom was more receptive or was able to roll things out quicker. I don't know. But here, yeah, I, I think that it was it, at a certain point, you know, Wang Jing and the filmmakers behind this decided, nope, we're just going to do it on our own and here's how we're going to do it. And the way they do it is they represent, you know, fighting moves and certain stylistic aspects, but they change things enough. They change the names enough to where if you're a fan of the games, you're going to recognize things, but you don't necessarily have enough there for a lawsuit to go after them so the only thing i didn't know but that was what research was for is they didn't just feature street fighter 2 characters and style they also go for a little bit of dragon ball c and doraemon yes yeah and uh but that seems also like the same sort of deal that it wasn't cleared in terms of rights and they did it in a similar fashion that everybody would recognize the ha ah, dragon ball c but it's not actually legally, uh, legally Dragon Ball C. Uh, was that your impression that uh, it was done law- lawfully? Yeah, it, it, again, they're sort of skirting the envelope in terms of what they can try and get away with. And because it's parody, that I think makes it much harder in 
the legal system to sort of go after this kind of stuff. And also to put ourselves in the time frame, I mean, what we, would it be fair to say, because I, I'm more of an outsider looking in, the only time I played Street Fighter 2 was on, it was on every console and a computer uh, imaginable of course but i my version was on the on the amiga uh, so I, I played it I, that's fun but i've never been a good gamer in terms of fighters because i can't get those moves uh, to work and all of that so but but is it fair to say the street fighter 2 that was the huge spark of the phenomenon that still lives and breathes today or or does street fighter 1 has any credit in terms of spawning uh, a phenomenon I mean, you can go back a few years. Um, I really, I think in video game history, you'd go back to 1984 with a game like Karate Champ, which was basically just, uh, you know, you had these two figures. They basically looked like twins. And one was wearing a, a white gi and the other was wearing a red gi. And whether you were fighting the computer or fighting another player, that was it, right? And you had this sort of this weird shaped looking referee in the background who would, you know, give a point whenever you got a point. Video games themselves drew a lot from movies, you know, so this idea of using the color to associate a side, um, you can, you know, tie back to movies, but that's a very simple thing um, that I guess I've been to a few uh, martial arts tournaments, you know, it's never been that clear cut, you know, okay, you're wearing white and you're wearing red, you just wear the color of your school or whatever your school uniform is usually. And then a few years later, of course, you get a game... In uh, 1984, or no, same year as Karate Champ, 1984, you have another game called Kung Fu Master, right? Which is basically a direct ripoff from Bruce Lee's Game of Death, where you're this Kung Fu Master who's going up this tower to rescue his girlfriend who's been kidnapped. And at every level, as you go across the level, you've got these generic guys you have to fight. And then you get to the end of that level before you go up a set of stairs and there's a master of a certain style you have to beat so i mean it was it's games ripping directly from movies and so now you have movies drift you know coming back and ripping directly from games um street fighter 2 was built off of street fighter 1 from 1987 and street fighter 1 like karate champ um a few years earlier had that idea of okay you've got this one fighter in white and you've got this other fighter in red and we'll call the fighter in white Ryu and the fighter in red Ken. But they were both kind of clones of each other. They both had the same moves. You could do this really kind of basic fireball, you know, the Hadoken punch. You could do the uppercut and the whirlwind kick, and that was about it. There's no real story or narrative to that. So it was like this intermediary between the Karate Champ game and what comes uh, in 1991 as Street Fighter Two. Now, Street Fighter II becomes a breakout success because now you've got the variety of picking combatants from all over the world with a variety of different styles, and one of those combatants that you can pick is the female, the Chun-Li character. Each of these combatants has their own story, too, so now you're not just playing to you know, see how many levels you can get in, but you're trying to find out more and more of the story as you get to the end and you, you know, sort of beat the main villain. Because of that addition of narrative, because of the selection of choice, this game explodes worldwide. Because with a game like the original Street Fighter, you might identify with it, but if you're a girl, maybe not. You know, so now you have a girl to choose, and so, you know, that excites girl gamers. It's, I, I hate to say it in sort of those black and white gender terms, but 
they have a character they can choose if they want to play a girl character rather than only being able to play guy characters up to this point. You have characters from Brazil, from Thailand, you know, from Japan, you know, so it's no longer this sort of blankly generic sort of template. You've got characters that people can identify with. And so that's part of the reason why it blew up. Of course, it had better graphics and better sound and all of that that came with the technology too. And then, of course, because it's so super popular, it becomes a piece of popular culture that people then want to tap into, just like Mortal Kombat was. You know, they want to make movies about it. And you get, of course, Wang Jing throwing elements of it in City Hunter and then, of course, just kind of ripping even more out of it here. But as you said, he also pulls from Doraemon, which is still wildly popular in Hong Kong, and uh, Dragon Ball as well. You brought up the elements of story. I didn't know that because I didn't remember it. Uh, this is a long time ago since I even touched uh, Street Fighter 2. Because I know there were at, at least a movie. Uh, Street Fighter 2, the movie, or Street Fighter the movie, um, an anime uh, done in Japan. I didn't know if that was the first emergence of backstory for these characters uh, or not. So, but, but it's not uncommon, I know that, in fighting games to have to have a little bit of story attached to uh, these fighting scenarios. Certainly not storylines that end up in future cops, right? It's its own beast, right? Yeah, no, it's it's it's, its own thing. I mean, the, the only real kind of central idea you have is here you have uh, Ken Lo, who's playing the uh, M. Bison character. Now, forgive me, for, for purists out there, I know that you probably want to go by the original Japanese names, where the villain was called Vega. So they switched around the names. I don't want to get too much into that, but we'll, we'll just use the Americanized names here, you know, and Mike Tyson can sue us. Um, Mer- America so, first. America first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Ken Lowe, who was named M. Bison in the video game, that's the sort of the, the, the big bad, as it were. And so the M. Bison character, he's not called M. Bison here. They refer to him as General, but basically he's got that sort of look of sort of the nationalistic, military uniform and you know who he's supposed to be it's, yeah it's, there's it's no a pretty secret. much no doubt i mean if you've seen uh, the jcvd movie obviously that's the uh, raul julia character where they got clearance to do everything of course in that street fighter the movie but the resemblance is obviously striking it's not like he has a tiny little uniform in completely different colors or anything you know it, it is M. bison and, and uh, so certainly you recognize that from the game so as it opens, uh, clearly Wong Jing is nowhere near the opening. <laughs> Obviously, it's uh, Ching Sudong and his action team. Without knowing the universe, it's it's sort of it's setting up a sci-fi tone, and I think they're all on point as they craft this energy of uh, these hover skateboards that uh, that they uh, you know launch onto the screen. They shoot lasers. There's incredibly impressive pyrotechnics going on here, all shot by Andrew Lau, who gets this sci-fi look. Really well nailed, I think, through uh, the uses of blue and there's like tons of white fluorescence scattered throughout this um, outdoor set, it looks like. Because it is made in 1993 in Hong Kong, there is a confidence and skills present there in terms of how you depict wire action on screen. So what we see here, despite having the Street Fighter tag on it, for for lack of a better word, it's not far-fetched for Hong Kong, even on a budget, to do the kind of sights we get here, even if those sights are these spinning kicks and animated effects, these uh, energy balls, the Hadouken, coupled with uh, when it's not all not all stuntmen or women, c- coupled with seeing the stars immersed in this energy, which is a very undercranked energy, literally at points, as they, they uh, 
as they do a fight scene. It might look a little bit daft to have it this undercrank, but I guess it all... The excuse is, and why it makes sense, is that this is a video game adaptation. So to have this style, the undercranked style, and coupled with all that I talked of, the technical know-how, I guess that makes sense for, for the kind of material that they're they're riffing on here, uh, or, or what do you think? Uh, or was this completely new, like the, what Wong Jing and crew was doing here, the, the, the type of sci-fi style and action do you think that was mostly their own or were they riffing on the games to an extent here uh i i think it's a combination i mean you do get them in a couple places trying to do their best to visualize the special moves of some of these characters i mean i think from a technical standpoint you can look back to city hunter as perhaps more visually successful in pulling off some of that I, I, again, it, perhaps it's due to you know budgetary constraints and and things of that nature, and the fact that they're just trying to go for the comedy maybe more than the action for m- most of the film that they're not that you know that invested into it. I guess. I mean, it's all recognizable when you see uh, Simon Yam's character. Uh, I I never got the name of it. That was the character I probably played the most during my limited playtime with Street Fighter Two. Uh, Simon Yam's uh, the character is referred to as Dal Sim. Dal Sim. Dal Sim. Yeah. So they obviously depict that by having these fake extended arms and Simon Yam bouncing or juggling his particular opponent, which is a big fat one on one of his arms or one of his legs. So, so obviously, yes, that's Street Fighter Two ding and. And it might be a low-budget solution, but that it works for the scene, man. It works for the tempo and visual style and feel that they're setting up here in this first sequence that I, again, that I don't think Wong Jing had much of an input because around this time I don't think he was very interested in providing input to to the action team. He'd rather write his uh, gags. I mean, people have said that without being shitty about it. They've said that, well... When we were fighting, that Wong Jing was in his corner writing jokes for the next day. So uh, that was, uh, it has always been that way with Hong Kong cinema that action directing is very literal. You know, they're running the set now where, when action is concerned. So I think Xing Sedong and his team were, were responsible for this first scene. And I think it looks great. But And it's all quite excellent. But you ask yourself that they can't keep this up. They're not going to do this throughout the entire picture. And they're not. Because this is a Wong Jing movie, and uh, he plays the commercial Hong Kong comedy game. He also isn't working with the greatest budget in the entire history of Hong Kong cinema, so how do you solve budget issue concerning a sci-fi setting? You know, How do you solve uh, planting yourself into that genre throughout the movie? Well, you employ time travel, and you get us back to 1983. <laughs> and then you have the settings ready for you. And as cheap as that sounds, I think, you know, it it works, man. It works. They need to go back to 1993. I mean, uh, that's that's how we uh, that's how we get production value, and uh, that that's all fine as a transition for fans of Street Fighter the universe. I'm sure this is like, what's this? Time travel? Go back to huh? Right, but uh, I don't know how much story, how much story was established, or how I don't know how hardcore you were in terms of like this is the only way you tell Street Fighter. Like, uh, were you on board with this completely alternate, uh, alternate uh, way of uh, depicting uh, depicting the universe? The thing that sold me was the minute Jackie Chung shows up, and he's called Broom Man instead of <laughs> playing Guile. And because of his hair, right? And yeah. he's got this. Huge... I'm I'm, je- I'm jealous of that volume. I'll have to say. 
I, when he showed up on screen, I was sold. I'm like, okay, this is not this is not Street Fighter as I know it and love it. Because because that is the Van Damme character in Street Fighter the movie. He's that's the Van Damme counterpart, right? Right, right. Um, so yeah, this is. I mean, and the, the irony here too is that if you look at the Street Fighter game narrative, Street Fighter Two game narrative, I mean, it's very it's very much a modern day martial arts film right. with you know a slight carryover into you know fantasy or wuxia, depending on how you want to film it. And they could have easily done that. I mean, they've got the techniques, they've got the the training, they've got plenty of action directors like Tony Ching and others who know how to do a, a sort of modern-day fantasy martial arts thing. So for them to throw this whole time travel sci-fi aspect onto it, I was like, okay, whatever, you know. It's it's just, it becomes a beast all its own. You know, they change the names over, and there's references, of course, to uh, the Terminator movies as well. So it's just, a, again, this hodgepodge of everything that was sort of popular in the early 90s that they're throwing into this melting pot and trying to make, you know, a sort of kanji, I guess, <laughs> into a movie. And uh, that kanji includes uh, actor Dickie Chung. And he's interesting and rather annoying at the same time. He, he, he's a rather ordinary-looking guy. You know, he's not overly, you know, comedic-looking and not overly, like, um, slated for romantic roles, necessarily. But... At this time, he had a broad streak in him with select dramatic performances. There's a good Alex Mann movie called Lost Duel that Dick is in, and he's very good, and the movie's very good. So so here, Dickie Chung plays, plays well, he plays a student. He's in school, and the, these characters are in their mid-twenties, most of them. So, okay, okay, they're in school, whatever. And he's the butt of jokes, and he's a clown, and all of that. But those select movies I watched, he did a time travel movie with uh, Tony Leung, and also Black Panther Warriors, where he was sucking on this pacifier. That was very annoying. And he's, I have some notes on why his comedic performance is tolerable but doesn't work. But I heard, just following recent both Hong Kong cinema but also Hong Kong TV, that Dickie has sort of reinvent, reinvented himself over the years. That he's more of a dramatic actor or even a kung fu player in movies or, or and or TV. Or what do you know about uh, Dickie's sort of like millennium persona and onwards, if you will? I think part of the problem was that he was living in the shadow of Stephen Chow. And this was very apparent in this film and uh, some of his other roles and some of his TV dramas. I mean, basically, he picked up the role of the Monkey King in a post-Chinese Odyssey environment, right? The Stephen Chow's you know, roles as the Monkey King in Chinese Odyssey 1 and 2. You know, so he follows suit by doing the role on a TVB drama, and then he reprises the role a few years later in another TVB drama. So I, you know, he he does uh, what was the other film, My Hero Two. It's part of the problem was that I think he was seen as trying to be like Stephen Chow, but never quite a Stephen Chow, and so he had very difficult time getting beyond that. And ultimately, he found a niche in doing a lot of television drama. And of course, he's good friends with. I want to say uh, Andy Hoy and Edmund So, I think, and you know they they have a they had a band together, you know, doing music together for a while. So I, I again, I think it was just a, not that he's not talented, uh, just that he's was perhaps trying to be a bit too much like a Stephen Chow for a while, and that 
worked against him. So it's I, I you know I've seen him do other stuff uh, in terms of television drama that's very provocative, very good. And my memory totally shot. Uh, have I just dreamt that he became a more of a kung fu player in certain series or dramas on TV? Yeah, he, I mean he did. He uh, he did. Um, I'm trying to think of the one that I watched with him. But a lot of times it was it wasn't just doing kung fu. It was like I think he did a, like a young Fong Sai-yok series, and you know, being being sort of the more clever guy, um, sort of like the royal tramp character. You know, that was he did a lot of that for a while. The last movie I saw him do, he's had. I mean, he's had a couple of cameos and things like Seventy Two Tenants of Prosperity and I Love Hong Kong back in 2012. Um, but the one that comes to mind was Champions in 2008. Um, not sure if you've seen that one. And that was a uh, a movie about martial artists that he headlined. I think that's where the memory stems from, because I remember back in the day, Mike Banner talked of like upcoming movies. And I remember we started Podcast on Fire in 07. So that, make, yep. uh, that made sense. It's just that, that, that this is my memory. Like uh, I, I just saw some screenshots, and oh yeah, he was in Lost here in China. He had Buck Tooth. Ha, ha, ha. That's the persona he's left me with, which is unfair, of course. But it is evident here that Wong Jing, who directed Stephen Chow and would do so multiple times, is trying to get this droll, quirky, dry delivery combined with like broad scenarios and elements that, that Stephen did so well. And was in control of himself, but he's not getting Dicky to break through in the same way. It's not as annoying as it used to be once upon a time when I watched this, where he was intolerable. But it's just that trying to do what he did with Steven by just sort of m- moving the same gags to another person who's not ready for it. That sort of it, it just sort of you, you just sort of shrug at it. Uh, at one point, he's like sweating a lot. Someone's trying to seduce him, and there's like liters and liters of sweat running off him. And that's that's something Stephen would sell beautifully, because he's so wonderful at being silly. And Dicky certainly doesn't he, using the same style almost beat by beat. Certainly doesn't work. The only thing I loved that, but maybe it was in combination because Kingdom Yun was in the same same scene as him at that time. Woof. She has this positive attitude and he says rather than be depressed, just uh, uh, breathe in and love life and love life. And uh, they have a ma- mantra thing going on there and they do that together. And then when they're done, Dickie says, ah, I'm gonna go kill myself now. <laughs> and that timing was good though. But it's it's one out of many moments where Wong Jing is just pushing him to try, try, try harder, try harder, be in our face, just like Steven. And it's it, it's a little bit unfortunate, I think, because it's it seems it's not coming from Dickie, but that was through that performer, Stephen Chow. And you can't just do that with anyone and ask anyone to do that comedy. Occasionally it works, man. Uh, when you put un- almost untested comedic actors performing that kind of style. Remember Tony Leung in Chinese Odyssey 2002? Very reminiscent of uh, Stephen Chow, and I thought that was hilarious. It just worked, man, because you got to dedicate yourself to it, and you also have to bring talent to the table. And clearly Tony has some comedic style in him that he still, you know, likes to perform. It's not just one kawaii broodiness uh, on his plate and stuff. So so the more I know about you dis- uh, describing uh, Dickie Chung's sort of trajectory, 
And Moa kind of feels sad that it, it almost feels like he was forced to do this. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't make for memorable performances, though. It's not something I return to. Uh, this and Black Panther Warriors. And where he had this thing where he started sucking on a pacifier, but he was super smart, too. And it's just like, okay, well, Clarence Fock madness in front of us. What is it about? Well, who cares? A lot of cool hats in that movie. That's all I remember right now. Anyway. Let's talk about a crazy fact. Uh, I looked up just to sort of, uh, it was made in 1993, how Wong Jing did a few movies in 1993, I remember. Oh, he did this, this, this many movies in 1993? So, without looking, have a guess. How many movies credited to Wong Jing as director released in 1993 do you think are on his uh, resume? I'll say 15. A little bit too high, but it's still a crazy number. I think 9 or 10. That's crazy, man. That's absolutely mad. This is, again, 1993, three years or four years before the handover. So this was a crazy time. People were trying to work as much as possible to make as much money as possible in the event that they had to bail. Um, So, yeah, this is a period when you see, you know, like... It's a quality year, though, you have to remember. 1993 for Wong Jing. Look at that filmography now. Those movies are not bad. It's not... Let's just list a few here. Lost Here in China. Future Cops. Boys are easy. Kung Fu Cult Master. Holy Weapon. Fight Back to School. Free Man. Legend of the Liquid Liquid Sword. City Hunter. uh, The New Legend of Shaolin. uh, God of Gambler's Return. uh, Return to a Better Tomorrow. Hail the Judge! Which is my favorite Stephen Chow movie. Well, that was 1994, sorry. And a few others were. But it's still crazy how solid uh, qualities throughout these uh, throughout these movies considering this is a guy who must have worked year round oh yeah yeah even when he wasn't directing he usually had his producer fingers in you know at least half a dozen other productions going on do you think uh, that petered out as years went by as he produced and produced and produced leading up to the handover do you think it was there was evidence in his work that it's the effort isn't that same as it was a few years earlier, and the touch isn't as strong or sharp. Well, yeah, I think this is a this is a major criticism against uh, director Wong Jing uh, as a as a filmmaker, as a creator. That his creative spark kind of got kicked to the wayside. You know, I wouldn't say this early, but you know, by the end of the '90s, he was more into just making product to fill slots you know whether those were cinema slots or later to on into things like uh, star movie channel and, and things like that and of course getting more and more um, into productions that could clear into the mainland market once you know once the, the few years after the handover when they uh, created the the uh, film exchange partnership thing i forget the official name of it now that market was open and you know he's making products to fill the shelves, basically. Um, and I think he's, he's less worried about whether the product is going to be a film award-winning product or what people would consider a quality product. You know, it's more about just, you know, doing the business. For a little while, that artist came out, though. I mean, going through Mob Story, certainly. But you had Call of the Truth there pop up, which was a co-directed adventure, but solid and not... You would all you would all think that this was his cheap response to Infernal Affairs, but it actually was a solid little movie. And and I heard that maybe you guys talked of it that that push around that time was Wong Jing trying to get awards jurors to notice him, but uh, it, that didn't really happen. But we still got a, a little canon of solid movies he produced. Uh, uh, Who Who uh, the Marco Mac movie with not just one mole but a thousand of them, <laughs> you know. But it was still solid, man. And uh, he he tried for a while, and then but that that was early. 
millennium, obviously, 2003, 4, 5. That, that, that artist is not present anymore because I don't think that's his aim anymore. And I think if you look over his filmography, especially in the latter half of the new millennium, you come to a return to things that he's done before. And we get a lot of repetition moving into multiple Kung Fu Mahjong titles. You get into uh, something like On His Majesty's Secret Service, where instead of Stephen Chow, you now have Louis Koo. Everybody has Louis Koo. <laughs> Everybody has Louis. You know, Future Ex-Cops, which as we said, is not not related to this film at all, but it is you know a similar in terms of it it's again Andy Lau and is sort of in in the headline role traveling back in time to be a, a a good guy as it were and that whole that kind of aspect from the production sense that yes we're going to do a science fiction but it's cheaper to do a science fiction in the modern era than in the future so that's what we're going to do and this is not a slight at Wang Jing because there are tons and tons of hollywood movies and television shows that do the exact same thing. They take somebody from the future and they plant them in the modern day because it's cheaper to film that way. But the credit to Wong Jing, uh, again, he was good at cranking comedy, and it's evident here. And, and he knew commercial energy. He knew what the audience would respond to. This was a fair hit, um, just a few million short of, uh, you know, a, a fight back to school free. But but it's just that the mileage varies. And uh, in this movie, not everything is funny. I didn't laugh a lot, but I had enough fun you know i had fun sitting there smirking a little bit and and that is due to game performance that gets him a long way uh, and, and the the visual style set up in that opening action that overcrank style and all and sort of surreal style in a way because it's a sci-fi thing it almost seems like it travels to a comedy that okay we we're gonna crank this and make it totally surreal and have no anchor in reality at all we're gonna make a live comic book here and it certainly does look that way where you know there's scenarios where you know dicky chung manages to uh, you know impale dennis chan with a spike club in the back of his head and he is uh, obviously he obviously isn't harm it's just something he noticed is a little bit of, a, of an inconvenience and then they move on and there's even stuff where ching miao and they fight and stuff and he stuffs him into a garbage uh garbage bin and you see obviously he's folded up by that point so and and at one point we get a cartoon B for comedy. So there is this cranked, sort of surreal, rapid-fire notion to a comedy that's a little bit more elevated than I'm used to watching Wong Jing. And I think he's taking his cues from the whole scenario, really, that uh, modern times is going to be wacky too and not broody and serious. And these guys change it, the, the future cops. No, these characters are living in a live cartoon anyway, and... Uh, you have to admire that insistence on, because he, he pulls that off quite well. He ma- maintains that tone quite well, even though I didn't laugh at, at uh, many things. So uh, it's certainly something that the official Street Fighter movie didn't have. I, I can't imagine that that aimed for a crazy frenetic energy, whether in special effects or comedy. I just The Street Fighter movie with Van Damme, based on nothing other than seeing pictures of it, made me think of, well, that's sort of a B-actioner, I guess. Well, forgettable, and it turns out it probably was forgettable too. But uh, any comment on uh, on that notion of live cartoon comedy that Wong Jing puts forth here? Yeah, this is basically what they're going for—a sort of live anime esque cartoon or manga, like you mentioned. The, that it happens, like I think, more than once too, where they uh, you know characters get a spiked club to the back of the head, and of course, there's no blood. 
Uh, they're they're perfectly fine. And this is what you you know you expect to see in reading a manga or a kid style anime like Doraemon, where you know big sledgehammers are pulled out on a moment's notice. The thing too with the narrative is much like we mentioned in uh, I Love Maria. The film does kind of stagnate because what you get is you get a lot of the budget thrown in the future sequence and the end fight sequence, and then they've just got to sit for a while. But but they have to sit for a while, and where are they going to do that? They're going to do it at a school, a place that's you know fairly easable to secure as a cheap location. They're going to throw in some you know sight gags, so you basically get a series of different skits as the film tries to play out to the ultimate narrative, which really itself doesn't make any kind of sense because you've got the evil guys headed by Ikan Cheng, who's playing a variation of Ken, but with instead of blonde hair, he's got a blonde streak. <laughs> and he's coming back with uh, his crew to try and locate this judge who's going to sentence the their their boss, the general, uh, a.k.a. M. M. Bison, in the future. And so they're going to come back and brainwash him so that this guy won't sentence him, which is, you know, the the, no, the normal plot is we go back and kill him so that then that guy <laughs> doesn't exist and, you know, we change the future and everything. But no, they're just going to brainwash him because that'll work. You know, so any time, any trying to think through um, the deeper aspects of this narrative just becomes utter nonsense. So you kind of just have to say, all right, I'm going to get a series of kind of SNL style skits one after the other after the other as they play through to the final action sequences so let me see what they got let me you know th- throw throw it at me is it laugh out loud funny for you or you're sitting there just just being entertained sort of uh, because i i didn't laugh very much but i i was entertained by the tone energy frequency volume of it all uh, even though it's sort of uh dopey too where you sort of oh, really really you're, you're in humor okay um for me it's entertaining seeing this big cast Uh, on screen being silly because you don't get a lot of this anymore and when we do it's usually got the locations Vegas and Macau in it so watching them be silly here watching them be game for going for the kind of comedy they're they're going for I find entertaining a film like this too um, again is in the shadow of the fight back to school series which I think 93 had the third one come out and so that was already a kind of by that point overdone You know, people were already kind of tired of that. But, f- but Fight Back to School 3 was, um, was barely set in a school. To be. Right, But right. yes, it, yes uh, it had that uh, attack. So it's got this element, you know, Dickie Chung, he's not a cop, but he's like a 28-year-old who's still stuck in school. Andy Lau's going in undercover. Um, Jackie Chung becomes a teacher, you know. So it's got all those elements of, okay, we've got a school. We're going to put these guys in a school and let, let the hijinks ensue. And for me, that's fine. There, There is some subtle stuff that I think is embedded in the language that I started to pick up a little bit more this time. So like the school they're in, actually, and, and I, I picked it up slightly and my wife helped me confirm it, is called the Saint something, where do I have got it written? The, 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 the Sing Yuk, Sing Yuk Kung, and I've probably got the tones wrong on that, but it's the Saint something school. But those... In Cantonese, Singyuk Kang is, it sounds like they're saying strong lust school, basically. You know, so yeah. So there's stuff like that thrown into the name, you know, into some of the verbiage, stuff that you'd see in a, you know, a stand, again, a, another Stephen Chow movie, but probably done to better effect that's there. 
there's also, again, subtle references to things like Doraemon and other things that are done in sort of one-off line mentions that aren't always translated out into the subtitles well. That stuff is based on, you know, cultural context that the audience at the time will get, but people from the outside, people not in that era, in that moment, they may not get it. Certainly plenty of that to discover on rewatches, and so I do appreciate it from... But yeah, this is not a laugh-out-loud kind of thing, except in the first five minutes. In the first five minutes, I was laughing just because, you know, I was... Pew-pew-pew, pew-pew-pew, pew-pew-pew. Yeah, revisiting and, and seeing <laughs> Jackie Chung with the hair and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, there are other problems, too. You do have Simon Yam. We all love Simon Yam, but he's basically being asked to play a character of color here. Yeah. Uh, it's akin kind of to blackface, but not really. And this is something that, you know, by today's politically correct standards, some people would look and go, eh, that's kind of not okay. But again, it's a silly sort of throwaway comedy, so we can kind of overlook it. And they've got other stuff too. Like there's a scene where uh, they take a Polaroid picture using a future camera, right? And then the, the, the very next shot is the of the Polaroid picture. So they take, I think they take like Andy Lau and Jackie Chung and Dickie Chung and somebody else are in the frame, or maybe it's just the three of them. They take the picture on a Polaroid camera, but then the picture has sectioned them each off into portrait photos, right? So that's future tech because your modern Polaroid camera is not going to do that. It's not going to give you, uh, you know, a single picture of, of sort of a profile pics listed out there. So, you know, it's little stuff like that that I look to and and analyze and pick apart. But yeah, it's this is not something that's going to make you roll in the aisles, I think. No, it does seem to try to do that. Maybe local audiences had way more of a ball. But uh, this tone, again, everybody being game, as I said, blah, blah, blah. It kind of half survives with a bear plot for almost the entire first hour uh, because of this comedic and visual insistence connected to comedy. And it's not actually, to me, going overboard with pop culture references like like Wong Jing usually does like there's no little sidetracks leading into parody sequences except and here's where the padding comes in for for Jackie Chung's uh, MV in the middle of the movie where they start to parody ghost and things like that and that's the Wong Jing I recognize more the guy who just throws you know even global recognizable global elements on the screen from pop culture and movies and stuff like that but it didn't seem to me like it was doing much of that it had its elements to make fun of but it didn't throw in 10 movie parodies from last week uh, from either hong kong or uh, or over west uh, but this should have been 80 minutes really because that would have been, uh, that would have been more smoother effic- efficiency because it takes a good hour before Ikin Cheng turns up again and then gets uh, Andy Hoy's character on his side and then and bison comes into the modern times as well in between there is uh Andy Lau almost getting peed on and eating a refrigerator and, uh, and all those things. And after a while, it starts to become like, okay, you had a plot. Can we reintroduce yeah. it? It's just a series of skits. I mean, the one that stands out for me is Poor Kingdom Yun has this whole sequence where she's in the kitchen and it's almost like Mr. Bean, right? Because it's like she's trying to get the water to work and it's not working and there's a plumber there. And it's like one of those things where... You know, every time he turns around, she gets doused with water from every orifice in the kitchen. (laughs) And then the guy turns around and then it stops. And I love her because she's so game for it. It's it's like I can imagine them sitting in the in the planning room. All right, we're just going to fire hose you down with water for this scene. Has nothing to do 
with character growth, has nothing to do with the overall plot. Like I said, it's just this sort of standalone SNL skit, and you'll either like it or you don't. And the movie is built on a long sequence of those in the sort of the middle part of the film that really have nothing to do with a lot of what we get in the beginning and the end. So if you're okay to sort of park your expectations and just kind of go along with that, if you if you like those kind of, you know, one gag after the other after the other and some are hit and some are miss, um, then you'll have a better time with this movie. And and certainly because she is an accomplished comedian anyway. I mean, we, we don't turn to Ching Miao for accomplished comedy. We don't turn to Dickie Chung for that. But to have Kingdom in there for for brief bits even even when she just turns up and hey 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 i'm kingdom yun let's let's tell some filthy jokes <laughs> but i i i actually do dig her and that that scene is wonderful and uh it, isn't it that that has the subtitles uh instead of the pipe is leaking uh, the subtitles uh, is that the pope is leaking yeah added unintentional fun for us uh, but uh, sidetracks like hey super mario is po- is popular let's do a school play production value on the level of a school play production and just have Andy Lau and Ching Miao be in a Super Mario game and that is Wong Jing really taking it a step too far because it doesn't come off as we made it cheap and that's the gag but if that was the case then he completely lost us because it looks awful and it's merely done also to sort of sexualize Ching Miao because that's commercial, right? But did you notice that that scene is a downer and a half, man? Because they talk of um, uh, sex and contraception in the future. Wong Jing gets real on us, man. I want to describe to listeners about w- w- what Andy Lau says about AIDS in the future. I, I think it's because it's so rampant that they decide people are not allowed to have sex so that everybody can just die off who's got it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they just, Wong you know, just... <laughs> It's just the so if you want to have kids, you got to basically do their version of some kind of a in vitro fertilization. So there's no fun in the future, apparently. Within the more crap Mario set, yeah. that's when they bring like, okay, kids, you know, there's a thing called reality too. So let's talk about it for a while. Really, Wang Jing? Really? Okay. But even he even talks of like if you're they don't say this, but essentially he talks of like if you're horny, you can take a pill and you get high, and that solves that. Yeah. Okay, that's an idea, but not. Do not mention it again. Do not let any character actually take that pill. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it has disposable parts, but that 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 aids uh, sort of PSA in twenty forty three. Shit gets real. You can tell that they were kind of constrained. Yes. <laughs> with what they were doing in in the Super Mario world, and it, again too, it's just him riffing on what's the popular culture of the moment. How many. Things can they pack in to this film, be it done well or done not so well? And 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 that is not charming, sort of low budget production values. It's just uh, pretty, pretty pretty pathetic, to be honest. But I, I like Andy and Ching Mei on screen. But she looks great when she, you know, when she lets out all her hair and drops her glasses. But it, the commercial game is very transparent. Also, probably mentioning not just the packed in cultural references, but the packed in cast, because you do get. Uh, Richard mm, a bit later as Blanca. You have Andy Hoy here playing as a character from Street Fighter fans. Did you ever, did you ever conceive in your head that I think Richard mm, is a perfect candidate for yeah, that fighter? <laughs> you know, uh, Billy Chow, who looks nothing like Sagat, ends up you know playing the the Sagat role. 
But the one thing, the one thing that's really surprising, because for fans of the game, you know that most of the game is typically centered around the character of Ryu, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at like the Street Fighter animation series or the mo the animated movies that they've done, they tend to be Ryu-centric. Now, in of course, America, we have to make them American-centric, so that's why they give us Jean-Claude Van Damme and, and Guile as the central figure in the American movie. <clears throat> I haven't seen the... Uh, I forget the girl who did it, the the, the Legend of Chun-Li movie that they did because I heard it was, it was terrible. Primarily, it's Ryu who takes center stage and his rivalry with Ken and others as he, you know, pursues perfection in his martial art. Here, they give us Aaron Kwok <laughs> as Ryu, who disappears for most of the movie, which was surprising because, you know, I don't know if they just said, well, we're going to have him on as a cameo. We can't afford to have him and Andy and Jackie in the same movie. Too much good hair in one movie. you got to go, Aaron. Yeah. There's a there's a gag bit where, you know, they basically say, you know, oh, we got to go back past. How come he doesn't go? Well, because he's like dating the chief's daughter or something, you know, uh, to that extent. I don't know if that was a reference to something in the news uh, of the era, but I I would probably bet money that it was. You know, there was some some news bite that had been done during that time. You know, again, it's this compact amalgamation of things. And my final note, I don't really have a lot to say about the ending because I think uh, the action team continues to to understand uh, the tone and the energy and their wire-assisted know-how. Coupled with, like, this cost and now Ching Miao is transformed into Chun-Li. Kingdom Yun is the mother of Chun-Li, which I don't know if it's an actual character from Street Fighter or something Wong Jing made up. Do you know that by any chance? Yeah, no, that's that's all Wong Jing. <laughs> of course it is. But, but uh, hey, kudos for him letting her dress up as a, as a Chun -Li, in a Chun-Li outfit. No absolutely, it looks gorgeous, and uh, she, she always does. But, and, but uh, the action team's understanding of how to mix the inspiration and their own wire action knowledge uh, makes for an energetic ending, It's but it survives more on energy. It's not coupled with intricate kung fu choreography. It's merely this Street Fighter undercranked energy with energy balls and uh, the uh, spinning kicks that you sort of can recognize from from this universe, but it's not classic choreography. It's just that the tone and the pace and the speed and the visuals and the volume of it seems to fit, and it makes the ending good fun. And everybody seems to be on board with the tone, including Ken Lo as uh, and Bison, as you said. So I, I don't really have any complaints about the ending. I wanted, as my final note, just single out my second biggest love when Bison transforms the school into sort of lecherous anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Chan and people start running after girls. You you scratch your head or rather just facepalm, but I, I thought I was so... It's like an unexpected sort of turn of events that really does not uh, inform the plot that much. But so seeing Dennis Chan and people run into probably the, the girl's toilet and chasing them out of the toilet was just... It's not right, but I laughed at it because... That's an idea, and they did it, and um, and they got me. I'm ashamed to say, but they they did get me. So that's the end of my notes. Or anything else you wanna wanna gush about, or or not praise, if you will. No, just uh, you know, uh, keep your eyes out for a very young Charlie Young at the time. You know, as I mentioned, Andy Hoy. And again, this is a, a film that is terrible and awesome at the same time, uh, and it's not for everybody. But uh, if you want to turn your brain off for a good ninety minutes, uh, and you haven't seen it, give it a shot. Yeah, you wouldn't catch me laughing, discussing with you and laughing like five, six, seven years ago when 
watching this movie because I, I, I think I've learned, for better or worse, to to view movies a little bit differently, perhaps. Um, slash, I've become so much more stupid that this now is okay. <laughs> you know, this plays out okay. But it gave me enjoyment on, on a decent level. And uh, I think uh, when all is said and done, we're, we're pretty even in our appreciation of it and our dislike of certain elements of it. Uh, so, so, yeah. The Street Fighter animated movie that came out of Japan uh, is something I'm going to pursue because I'm a fan of anime. Was that any good in terms of uh, elevating the stories of the characters or was it uh, more of a quick cash-in anime movie if you ever saw it? Because there's been a couple, I think, uh, the one you're thinking of is Street Fighter Alpha. The only thing I remember is that the English soundtrack had a lot of like grunge music so it was yeah. popular at the time. Alice in Chains is on the soundtrack and stuff like that. That that one is pretty good in terms of being a pretty good carryover of character representation from the film. They still take some liberties. Uh, I really I remember really enjoying that one. I've got it somewhere in storage. There is another there was a Street Fighter I want to say Street Fighter V uh series that was an anime series where the characters are young and I really didn't like it. It's one of the, it's kind of like initial D where it's like, you know, Ken or Ryu is learning to do his Hadoken over a course of like five or six episodes, wow. you know, and it's just like really, it just really takes way too much time and it doesn't feature all of the characters. That's one of the problems with these is, you know, you've got a wide range of characters and everybody's got their favorite so somebody usually feels shortchanged that their character didn't get enough time or enough focus. But um, yeah, the one, the the movie Street Fighter Zero or Street Fighter Alpha movie that I saw, um, I really liked that one. Yeah, flashes are coming back to me when I watched that back in the day. Uh, uh, not that, but the movie I remember that. The, the fight scenes had a, a visual flair to them and they, they were animated very big, you know, as they start to start to build up the powers and things like that so, uh, so yeah uh, it looked technically solid and um, and all of those things so i should look that out on laserdisc obviously that's where it's at kids in 2043 we will all be watching laserdiscs and i'm way ahead of you <laughs> so i oh i wanted to ask yeah I, because the street fighter 2 game universe it has so it seems like there's so much variations of Street Fighter 2 in its own, like Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Street Fighter 2 da 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 uh, Little like either tiny variations of the original game, maybe a new character or maybe a new arena or two. But when all of a sudden done, can you pinpoint like, that's my favorite Street Fighter game, whether it's 2 or something that was made last year? Um, well, I haven't, I, let's see, I've played some of the newer versions and they're, you know, on the newer consoles and they're good because they're flashier and they've got, you know, better graphics. And they stick to some of the core. I did play Street Fighter 2 3D uh, when it came out. But I, for me, I really like, I really gravitate between the look and the feel of the original Street Fighter game and Street Fighter Alpha, where the characters were a bit cleaner and younger looking in terms of their colors and design. So for me, those are the, those are the ones that, you know, I, I bear the fond memories spending hours in the arcades just, you know, grinding out quarters and stuff. Let's uh, do the quick availability. Uh, it's only been issued once on DVD, and it's a uh, Universe's DVD, and that disc is now out of print. I mean, I think Universe are producing movies, but they, they've given up on the DVD game by now, right? Unless it's one of their movies that they produced, right? I don't I don't think they're doing new issues anymore. I'm not sure. And then certainly they're for the catalog titles, and there are a lot of good ones. They, they, they certainly um, they aren't repressed extensively or at all by other companies, but their disc is now out of print. Uh, the print looks fine. The subtitles are surprisingly uh, pretty coherent. 
aside from the moment I I mentioned. The remakes on it is um, pretty bad. They did a 5.1 remake, so when there's glass breaking and you can hear new Foley and uh, suddenly the laser sounds are redone, but it's it, it's mostly okay. It is available on streaming, isn't it? Albeit just for um, for American Amazon, right? Yeah, it's on uh, Amazon Prime currently, so if you have access to that, you can uh, watch it fairly easily. But but that's not the, an HD version of the movie that they hidden away on streaming, right? No, it looks like uh, just sort of an SD stream of the DVD. It is what it is, so you have to turn somewhere and... Uh... And uh, hopefully it looks uh, on par with the DVD and not uh, below that and pixelated and stuff. So cool, man. Well, uh, thanks. And I hope uh, this was uh, a nice little gushing session and uh, cr- some, some critical thinking went into um, fairly uh, fairly judging uh, future cops too. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, not a regret necessarily. I don't know if when I'm going to return to it, if I'm going to return to it. But uh, it was an interesting reevaluation for sure. Uh, so yeah, let's do the contact information then sign off. And this has been uh, Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We're located on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows and bonus episodes. If we have an email, let us know what you thought of Future Cops. I love Maria. What's your favorite Street Fighter game? Podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Follow the handy buttons to our, our social media, Facebook, Twitter, our iTunes feed, and Stitcher Radio. There's handy buttons at the top of our website leading to all of those ventures. And I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, including uh, these two of this episode on SoGoodReviews.com. And I video review every now and again on SleazyKVideo.com. And my Twitter is at SoGoodReviews. And Paul, my friend, last plug is yours. So where can I find you when I'm not uh, holding you hostage for two hours talking of Wong Jing? Yes, uh, we are over at Comcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And you can... Check out our podcast, East Screen, West Screen, if you're interested to hear what we're talking about with uh, current films or whatever I can get my grubby little hands on. Cool, cool, cool. Well, well, we are done for this uh, episode. And uh, I've been Kennedy, and uh, with me was Paul Fox of East Screen, West Screen. And thank you again uh, for participating in this uh, discussion of uh, vintage, uh, vintage Hong Kong cinemas. Oh, thank you for pulling me on this special sci-fi-centric episode. It's been a blast, sir. And uh, we won't do sci-fi-centric episodes connecting to Hong Kong cinema because there are not a lot of whole, a whole lot of movies to choose from. I've been entertaining the idea of doing a sort of an unresearched commentary for Sit Down the Siege, but that might not be super sci-fi, just a little bit mutant in style. Yeah, I, it, it, it qualifies as sci-fi. I mean, they're trying to kind of go sort of a superhero X-Men-ish route, but... Um, it still feels a little bit like a martial arts film at times. So. Because I now like Benny Chance. I know I'm going to give him a chance again. Sit down to siege. Come to me, Papa. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, anyway, see you next time, everybody, and bye-bye. <laughs>